I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8 this morning, and we'll be looking at uh, God's providence and bringing about the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch of all people. So in Acts chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 25, and I'll read all the way down through the end of the chapter. And as I read this, I remind you that I'm reading God's inspired Word, so please give very careful attention to the reading of God's truth. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 25. Now remember, Philip had, been, uh, had gone up into Samaria. God had used him in a mighty way to bring about a great revival. Many people had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Peter and John had come up because they were the necessary agents, apostolic agents for the Samaritan believers to receive the Holy Spirit. So all of this has gone on. And so we pick it up now in verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of God, referring to Peter and John, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. And this comes out of Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. It says, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now go ahead and read in verse 37. But verse 37 uh, does not, is not found in all of the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have in the New Testament. So the King James Version, which is based on later manuscripts, includes it, but the earliest manuscripts don't include it. So you may have it in your text, or it may be out in the margin, but I'll go ahead and read it. It says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched 
Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, as we look at this uh, last and final major account of the ministry of Philip, we find that uh, he is being given special providential guidance. And we see in verse 26, for example, that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is a desert road. Now, this would have been a, uh, clearly a, a two-day journey from where uh, Philip had been ministering. He had been up in Samaria and more than likely came down through Jerusalem and then on his way down to Gaza. And it probably would have taken him two days to get to the place wherever he found the Ethiopian eunuch. We're not told exactly where, but probably closer to Gaza. That's the, that would be more the desert road area down in that, that particular part of uh, the, 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 uh, the route from Jerusalem down to Gaza. The angel appears to him, probably in verse 26. He spoke to Philip. So God is sending an angel to give Philip some very providential, specific and probably audible instruction from the Lord. And Philip obeys. He does exactly what God tells him to do. And it's interesting that God does not tell Philip at this point why he's sending him down to this desert road. And I think in many ways this would have been a test for Philip. It would have involved a sacrifice because he's in the middle of a great and successful and ongoing revival up in Samaria. His ministry there seems to be indispensable. He's kind of the anointed pastor, the fastest growing church in the region, if you will. And yet the Lord had other plans for him. It was time for him to leave the limelight of preaching to the multitude, seeing many, many come to faith in Jesus Christ to go off to an isolated desert road. Now, Philip could have responded like probably I would have responded. And thank God he didn't. But many probably would have responded with a complaining spirit. Lord, why are you making me leave? Why are you sending me down here to this desert road? Have I not been faithful in small things? When you, when you called me as, a, as one of the seven, did I not faithfully minister to the Hellenistic widows? And was I not faithful in the small things? And then you blessed me with this incredible ministry. Lord, why are you sending me away to the desert? Would I not be more useful here, Lord? Look at all the fruit that you've given me here. Why send me to a desert road? There's nothing there but tumbleweeds and lizards. And I guess I could go and preach to the rocks, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you use me better here, Lord? And can't you use my gifts in a more fruitful way than sending me way out there in kind of no man's land? Lord, send somebody else. That's the way Moses responded, remember. Or he might have said, Lord, send Peter. 
Peter's not doing anything. He's just going around being the fruit inspector, coming out here making sure we're doing Send Peter down there, Lord. But you've given me a fruitful ministry. Why are you uprooting me and making me leave? But Philip, thank God, had more grace than to respond in that way. But he actually responded in obedience, not knowing what lay ahead of him at this point. And I think this uh, speaks highly to his character. He was a man who was uh, full of the Spirit of God. He was a man of faith. And he knew that ultimately the ministry was not about him. It's not about his name. It's not about his fame. He knew like John the Baptist knew that he must decrease and Christ must increase. So whatever the Lord calls us to, it's about him. It's not about me. And he was willing to give up that very successful ministry because he had learned that God's ways and God's leadings are always best. And sometimes you just have to trust in God's plan even when you don't understand what God is doing in your life. Ever been there? Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? A lot of times because God is sovereign and guiding our steps, we don't understand why we're going this way when we think we ought to be going that way. Or when God puts us here when we think really we would do better here. And it's just merely a matter of learning to trust in God's providence. His providential leading and guiding. So in verse 27, he got up and went. There's no evidence that he questioned God or he complained against God. He went forth with the faith of Abraham, not knowing where God was taking him ultimately or what God was going to do with him. He just obeyed God because God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't expect to understand God. All God requires of us is to do his will, to obey him, even if I don't understand, to obey him. And so we find that Philip receives providential guidance through the angel in verse 26. And then later on in verse 29, the Spirit of God said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So now he receives another verbal, specific, possibly audible voice from the Lord that gives him specific direction on going up to where this Ethiopian eunuch is. And to join him in verse uh, 29. Uh, This is probably not Philip just getting an impression or a subjective sense of an inner voice. But I think it was probably much more concrete, much more distinct communication from the Spirit to Peter at that point in time. I, I don't think the Spirit of God communicates and guides us with that way that way today. I think He guides us primarily from the Scriptures, from the Word of God. But God can use impressions and feelings and our circumstances to guide us, but we can't always put our full confidence in those things because those impressions or those feelings can be hijacked by our flesh or by our hormones or by our imaginations or by Satan himself. So you can't always trust impressions or the circumstances. You ultimately have to go back and test it by the Word of God. 
And we should test those things before they can be trusted. And sometimes, yeah, I hear people say, well, the Lord told me to do this. I'm always wondering in the back of my mind, what did they mean by that? Did God give them a revelation? Did God speak to them? Or is it just a strong feeling or impression that they're getting? But whatever it is, they need to test it by the Word of God. That's our only infallible guide for matters of faith or doctrine or practice today. So I think this is probably a pretty clear, powerful uh, voice that the Spirit of God speaks to Philip in verse 29. And then the, the final way the Lord providentially guides him is all the way down in verse 39 when the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and he ends up in Azotus of all places. So this was actually a bodily transportation by the Spirit. There's no questioning that God wants you in that location if He picks you up and He, and he places you there supernaturally. So Philip is being providentially guided to go down from Samaria through Jerusalem, down this road to Gaza, and he's going to be told to go up and join this chariot where this Ethiopian eunuch is, uh, is riding. So now let's look at the Ethiopian eunuch. In verse 27, we are told that uh, he was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure, and that he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. So several things. First off, he was from Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia in the first century is identified roughly with the country of Cush. You can find Cush in the Bible, usually spelled with a C rather than a K. But it's south of Egypt's kingdom. It was a very uh, uh, large uh, area. It was very prosperous in many ways. And this Ethiopian was a man of black skin. He was a black man. He would be unlike, you know, uh, the Jews or the people living up in Palestine. So he would, he would have been a, a black Gentile man who from Ethiopia normally would have worshipped the pagan gods just like the Egyptians did. So they were polytheists. And again, it corresponds, this area corresponds roughly to the region of Sudan today. But it was the furthermost part of the Roman Empire. And these are important things to keep in mind. We also know that uh, he was a eunuch. He was a man who had gone through the surgical procedure. And this was uh, required for those who were keepers of the king's harems to protect them from sexual mischief. Or it could actually voluntarily be submitted to if you wanted to serve a lady of the court, or in this case, a queen, the queen of Ethiopia. So that these men were willing to sacrifice any future family for the power and prestige of a high position in the royal government. And he was willing to do that. We're also told in verse 27 that he was a, a court official of the queen, and her, her title is Candace. That's a title, not a personal name. It's a, it's a title like Pharaoh is for the king of Egypt. Uh, her personal name probably was Amantatera, if you look at the uh, history books. But again, 
He was a court official of the queen. The country of Ethiopia was prosperous and important. He was a distinguished public servant in, uh, in, this, in the service of the crown. And he was so important that he could take off however many weeks it would take for him to make a very long journey to Jerusalem and all the way back. This is a journey of probably about 1,500 miles to go from Ethiopia all the way up to Jerusalem and then back. We're also told in verse 27 that he was in charge of all of her treasure. So he was a man who was trusted and reliable. He managed all of her wealth as queen of Ethiopia. So he'd been kind of like, he'd be like our secretary of the treasury and a financial advisor from Merrill Lynch or something like that. So he was the keeper of all of the nation's treasures. But interestingly, we're also told in verse 27 at the end of the verse that he came to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we're not told that he was a proselyte. A proselyte. uh, Luke uses that word proselyte several times in the book of Acts. So he doesn't use that word to refer to this man. And a proselyte was a a Gentile who had fully embraced Judaism, even submitting to circumcision and baptism for ritual purity and bringing an offering. That's a proselyte, someone who had been basically absorbed into Judaism, a, a Gentile who had converted to Judaism fully. He's probably not that. Another expression is a God fearer. And a God-fearer is also an expression used by Luke several times, which he does not use of this Ethiopian eunuch. And that's someone who aligns themselves with the Jewish religion. They would keep the Sabbath laws and the dietary laws, but not submit to circumcision. I mean, they're only going to go so far, you know, and you go beyond that, I'm not going there. So they're kind of a halfway Jew, if you will. They, they, they uh, are drawn to worship uh, the God of Israel, but they do not submit to circumcision. He's not described that either. So we really don't know when he comes to worship in Jerusalem exactly where he is. Uh, he just may be someone who is a seeker. We don't, we don't really know. But he's being drawn. God is certainly drawing him to make this incredible journey from Ethiopia all the way up to Jerusalem. And then he's on his way uh, back down. Now, at this time, Judaism, when he got to Jerusalem and, and tried to worship God, he probably was disappointed by what he saw in Jerusalem. Uh, Judaism at that point had been corrupted by legalism, by Phariseeism, by biblical blindness. And the Ethiopian may have been very dissatisfied by what he experienced. Now, as a Gentile, he could only get so close in the temple area. Remember, there is a barrier inside the temple compound. And it went around the major temple area and no Gentile could pass that barrier. There are actually little signs posted on it that said that if you're a Gentile and you go past this barrier, then, then you're forfeiting your life. So as a Gentile, he could go into the outer courts of the temple, but he could go no further. Now as a eunuch, 
if they had known that he was a eunuch, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says that he could not enter the assembly of the Lord as a eunuch. So in other words, his experience of going to Jerusalem, probably having high hopes of engaging in all this glorious worship of the God of Israel, and yet he probably felt himself being stiff-armed by the Jewish laws, not only because of him being a Gentile, but even worse, because he, he was a eunuch. So he had to worship at a distance. Some say that had they known he was a eunuch, he probably couldn't even enter the temple compound at all. And the closest he could get was to go to a synagogue and worship there, which would be a far less experience than being able to go into the temple itself. So uh, from the eyes of a Judaism, he was an outcast. He was disqualified. He was a broken man. He was dismembered in, 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 in some ways. And from the Jewish perspective, you might think, who wants this guy? I mean, why witness to him? Why, you know, the law pushed him away. Uh, he's a Gentile. He's a man of the world. He's a eunuch. He's an officer in a pagan government. He has no place in the assembly of God's people. According to the Mosaic law, he's disqualified. He's rejected. He's prohibited. And yet the touch of the Master's hand will completely transform this man for the glory of God. One of the beauties of the picture of what we see in the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch is that there are people who think God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me to get close to Him. God has rejected me. And yet they don't understand the loving grace and mercy and the power of a touch from the Master's hand. And that's exactly what he's going to experience as we work through this. Well, we find in verse 28 that he's on his way back to Ethiopia and he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is an amazing thing. He has a, an Isaiah scroll. This is a, a long parchment that's rolled up with two sticks on the end. And he is reading the prophet Isaiah. So God's providence not only leads Philip to go down to this desert road, but he meets up with this Ethiopian eunuch who providentially is being prepared as well. Now he's probably reading from a Septuagint version. That's what's actually quoted in the Greek text in verse 32 and 33. But these scrolls were not cheap. So when he goes to Jerusalem, probably he is seeking, wanting to know more about this God of Israel. So he buys a very expensive scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So again, God is drawing him through his word. God's providence is, is directing this guy to buy this scroll and he's reading it. And we read that... Uh, uh, when we come to that, that he's actually reading this out loud. So God is certainly doing a work of, of drawing him into the faith. So he's, he's reading this uh, out loud. Verse 30, Philip ran up, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? Now the eunuch answered, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Verse 31. 
And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Now, several things. The very fact that he's uh, riding a chariot says a lot about this man. This is probably a very ornate looking chariot. It's often said that poor people walk. Middle class people rode donkeys. Military generals would ride horses, but the rich and powerful would ride in chariots. And this is kind of like the, the Rolls Royce of that day and era. And it may have had a little Starbucks uh, cappuccino bar in it. I don't know. But he's riding in this chariot. And God has put it in his heart, of course, to come all the way to Jerusalem and back. Again, he probably has a love-hate relationship with this religion of Judaism because it's, it's kind of rejected him in so many ways as a Gentile and as a eunuch. But he does buy this Isaiah scroll and he's reading it. And he asks Philip after he, he quotes it. Let me read again verse 32 and 33. The passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. And this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And remember, it's verse 7 and 8. And the verses right preceded, which he has just read out loud as well, talk about the incredible atoning death of the Messiah. That He was pierced through for our transgressions. That He was crushed for our iniquities. And then the next verse reads, He was led as a sheep to slaughter. This is talking about the Messiah in Isaiah's prophecy. And as a lamb before its shearer, he is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Verse 34. Now this is an important question, because had he been in Jerusalem and had the scroll and asked the Jews in Jerusalem who this prophecy was about, they certainly would not have attributed it to the Messiah. Uh, their concept of the Messiah was He was a warrior king. That He would come and defeat all of Israel's foes. And, and, uh, and they ruled out any idea that this could be their Messiah who is like a sheep that gets slaughtered and dies bearing our sins. They had no concept of that. They were, they were biblically blind to the true interpretation of this passage. Wasn't even on their radar. But it was Jesus in the Gospels that linked this passage being fulfilled in His death and resurrection. So he asked Philip, who's being talked about here? Is Isaiah talking about himself? Or about someone else. Now this is what you call in evangelistic terms being offered up a softball. Because he's asking Philip, here's, here's the Isaiah 53. I don't understand it. Can you tell me who he's talking about? I mean, how would you like to have an unbeliever come up and ask you that question? I mean, and that is a softball that you and I should be able to hit out of the park. We should know Isaiah 53. We should be able to explain the Gospel 
out of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, that, that the providence of God was leading this Ethiopian eunuch to read out loud when Philip arrives, is the crown jewel of the Old Testament when it comes to, the, to describing the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. There is no greater passage. And it's just the Lord had led him to, to the best passage of all of the Old Testament to hear the truth and the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ who would die in our place, who would bear our sins and the wrath of God for our sins that we deserve to suffer in hell. Jesus bore that on the cross. And so we go from a, from a, a providential guidance to just the, the providence of the Lord uh, bringing this Ethiopian eunuch and preparing him to hear the gospel. And then we now go to providential preaching in verse 34. So he asked Philip, again, of whom does a prophet say this, of himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth in verse 35. And beginning from this passage, he preached Jesus to him. The thing I love about Philip and the thing I, I pray that God would give me more of is that Philip had a love for people. He loved people. I think you see it in his willingness to go to Samaria and preach to people that the Jews would have despised. But he loved them enough to preach to them. He would go to an Ethiopian eunuch. Someone that again the Jews would look down upon and reject him and stiff arm him. Not only because he was a Gentile, but because he had been uh, dismembered and deformed as a eunuch. And they would have cast him aside. And yet Philip had a love for that man. See, I think Philip had a heart to see sinners come to know the Savior. I think he loved sinners. And I think part of the thing that I struggle with in my own witness and evangelism is just, I just need to love other people more who don't know Jesus Christ. I think God gave Philip a special love for those who are different than himself. Like Samaritans and Ethiopians. People that most Jews would not give them the time of day. And I think how often do we get hung up on looking at someone who's different than we are. Saying, you know, they're really not worth my time to share the Gospel with. Because they're different. Now, there's no way they're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, that's not the heart that Philip had. And today, we, we look at Muslims and we're kind of intimidated by them or we're scared by them because they're different. They worship a different God. And instead of loving them and seeking to find a way to share the Gospel with them, we just say, well, the... They'll never come to faith in Christ, so why waste my time? Or homosexuals, even those that can be very aggressive. We think, well, you know, they won't be saved. Or an illegal alien, well, we just need to ship them out. Or maybe they're a Democrat if you're a Republican. Or vice versa, if you're a Democrat. You look at a Republican. Or maybe they're a socialist. Like this crazy woman that got elected to the house. Or a communist. Or a new ager. Or maybe they're a witch. Or maybe they're just a, 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 a liberal of whatever. Well, God, you know, they're, they're too different. 
I don't want to waste my time sharing the gospel with them because they won't come to faith anyway. But you see, that's not the attitude that Philip had. Philip loved people. And he was willing to go to someone who was totally unlike him. He didn't look like him. This was a black man dressed in, in strange garments, riding a chariot, totally different. And yet Philip was willing to go and share with him. And God would use Philip to be a spiritual midwife in bringing this man into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Philip preached Jesus to him. And notice what it says here in verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this Scripture, he didn't just stay in Isaiah 53. He started in Isaiah 53. And then he probably went through so many other incredible passages in, in Isaiah to preach the glory of the Gospel. That's why Isaiah has oftentimes been nicknamed the fifth Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then go to the Old Testament, Isaiah. Because there's so much of the virgin birth about in Isaiah 7. And, and He's Almighty God in Isaiah 9. And, and He's the servant of the Lord. And He gives Himself for sinners, Isaiah 53. And beginning from there, He preached Jesus to him. Probably went to Psalms. May have gone all the way to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, they'll crush the head of the serpent. Who knows? But He probably did something similar to what Jesus did. When Jesus was crucified and buried and then rose from the dead on the third day, and he appeared to his disciples, and it says in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. That'd be all of the Old Testament. You can preach the gospel from the Old Testament, and that's exactly what Philip did. So, Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. No doubt he covered Jesus' birth and sinless life and substitutionary death and resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right hand. He probably told the Ethiopian eunuch about sin, how we've all been stained and corrupted by our own sin, that there is no way we can get rid of our sin, that there is a judgment day coming and we will stand before God, every single one of us, defiled and dirtied by our many countless sins that we've been guilty of, and we will justly be condemned to hell. But God in His love sent His Son to die on our place and take all of our filthy sins and suffer the wrath and the curse of God for us. So that any sinner, anyone, no matter how degraded you have been, no matter how wayward you have been, any sinner who repents and believes in Jesus Christ will not only have all of their sins forgiven, They'll be given the gift of Jesus' own perfect righteousness and the gift of everlasting life. I think he probably explained all of that to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was convinced. And he believed. And I think every believer should seek to be able to explain the Gospel to a lost person or a seeker like Philip did. And then we read in verse 36, and as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip, no doubt, had told him that as an outward expression of your faith, 
You get baptized. You identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. You go through the symbolic washing of the water that communicates an outward picture of what has already happened to you on the inside as a believer. You've been washed clean on the inside. Now you submit to Christian baptism as a symbol, an outward visual of what has already happened to you on the inside. And the Ethiopian uh, eunuch is amazingly uh, baptized. And if you'll notice here in verse 38... He ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. And Philip, as well as a eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, so they went down, apparently they're on this desert road. I guess there's some little pond or something off the side. The eunuch orders his driver to stop the chariot. They get out, they go down, and they actually go down into the water. And I think this is a a good argument for immersion as the mode of baptism. If all was required was sprinkling or pouring, they certainly both didn't need to go down into the water. The Ethiopian could have asked one of his attendants, no doubt he had some with him, to go down and get a cup of water if it was just sprinkling. But no, they both went down into the water. And I think that fits best with uh, the mode of immersion when it comes to Christian baptism. But they went down into the water, then they came up out of the water, and then we find that uh, an amazing thing happened in verse 39. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now what's so amazing about the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch is that a huge racial and physical barrier for the gospel has been removed. According to Judaism, this guy, he's not going to make a Jew. He's not going to be a Jew. He, can't even, he cannot even assemble with God's people. He was rejected. Yet he's a black man. He's a Gentile. He's a eunuch. And all of that which makes such a big deal in the old covenant and the new covenant doesn't mean anything. There's no longer Jew or Gentile within the body of Christ. So there's a huge racial and physical barrier. It doesn't matter if he's a eunuch. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. That doesn't matter anymore at all in the New Covenant. Membership in the New Covenant is no longer determined by being of the Jewish nation. Uh, Derek Thomas, one of the commentaries that I like to read on Acts, says, about the Ethiopian eunuch, that physically there was something broken about this Ethiopian that was symbolic of his spiritual condition. He was unfit for the presence of God. But Philip brought news that God had raised up a new temple in which he could receive full membership. And I think that's part of the beauty and why the Spirit of God moves Luke to record this amazing uh, conversion. is because this Ethiopian eunuch, this Gentile, this man who had been physically deformed or broken, who was unfit by the old covenant standards to even get close to the temple, is now a full member of the new covenant temple of the living God by faith in Jesus Christ. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ has forever altered God's relationship with mankind. All physical barriers are now broken down between the Jew and the Gentile. You're a son of Abraham, not because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, but because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. So there's an incredible racial and physical barrier that's being broken down with this man's conversion. But there's also a continental barrier being broken down. Because this man is from Ethiopia, the very outskirts of the Roman Empire. So that God now establishes a beachhead for the gospel in northeastern Africa, the furthermost part, again, of the Roman Empire, living on the very edge of the known world, basically, as they would have viewed that. And what's so important about that observation is that, remember, all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what Jesus told his disciples that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Well, Ethiopia is the remotest parts of the earth, according to the Roman Empire. And that's why he's included. Because it's showing the breadth of the Great Commission that now the Gospel is to go out into all the world And that even Gentiles, according to the mystery of Jesus Christ, are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, verse 6. Well, again, back to uh, verse 39. We find that the Spirit of God now snatches away Philip. What in the world does that refer to? Well, this word snatched can refer to a non-miraculous taking something up and transporting it to another direction or another location. But it can also, and it is used interestingly enough, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 of the rapture. When those who are alive, when Jesus Christ comes at His second coming, that we will be raptured up, physically transported to meet Him in the clouds, and then we'll become His entourage and descend with Him down to the earth. So it can actually refer to a supernatural picking up of a body and transporting it to another location. So, some would say it might refer to something like that. Now, obviously, this is totally inaccurate in the sense that they've already come out of the water. And it's a cartoon. This is nothing. This is not a cartoon that we're reading about in the Bible. But I am inclined to think that it was a supernatural transporting of Philip up to a city called Azotus. Now, whether he just disappeared in front of the eyes of the Ethiopian or whether his body was literally transported like this, I don't know. It really doesn't matter but it seems to me that it was something more supernatural than Philip just taking a cab or, or uh, what's the uh, Uber? That's what I'm trying to think. Get, getting an Uber to go up to Azotus. I think it's probably something more supernatural. But uh, so much for that. People have differing opinions. Azotus, you see on the map down at the bottom, it's north of Gaza. 
This is the old Philistine city of Ashdod that you read about in the Old Testament. Uh, it's called Azotus in the New Testament. But he is miraculously transported there, probably a distance of 10, 15 miles, depending upon where he is on the road. But the Spirit of God just lifts him up. Something maybe like he did with Elijah and Enoch, only different. But he lifts him up and, and drops him in Azotus. And then we read in verse 40 that Philip found himself in Azotus and he passed through. As he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So once he's at Azotus, Philip now begins to make his way up along the Mediterranean Sea going north, preaching in all the cities he goes through until he makes his way up to Caesarea. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 21, and we'll eventually get there, Philip is there. He's married. He's settled down. That's his hometown at that point. He has four virgin daughters that are all prophetesses. And seemingly, he's still preaching and ministering. He's faithful. for, uh, And that's probably a 20-year gap between Acts 8 and Acts 21 when we see our final little glimpse of Philip. One uh, conclusion. I want to just uh, point out a couple of things I think that we can learn from this uh, example of Philip. The first is that I pray for us as a church, and I pray for myself in particular, that God would give us a love for people around us. That we would be willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to speak the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers around us. And to be qualified, be studied up enough, to be, to be competent enough to preach Christ from the Scriptures, to be able to share the Gospel from the Word of God with those who do not know Him. That we would be available because God, you may find yourself in a situation where someone tosses you a softball and you need to be able to hit it out of the park. I was reading another story of Ian Thomas who is an an old evangelist and a Bible teacher who was coming back from a conference or some preaching engagement and he was worn out, dead tired, got on the plane. All he wanted to do is to curl up and go to sleep. And he kept hearing this psst, psst. And he looked over from where the sound was coming and there was a man there and he said to him, Sir, I'm I'm reading John chapter 3 about Nicodemus and I don't understand it. Do you know anything about the Bible? That's another softball that's being thrown to him. Well, may God give us those kinds of softballs in our witnessing uh, opportunities. But we need, the point is, I think, is that we need to love people and we need to be available to be led by the Spirit of God to share Christ with other people, to not be intimidated, even to be proactive. You know, it was Philip that came up to the Ethiopian eunuch and actually initiated a conversation. Do you know what you're reading? And sometimes we can start a conversation as easily as that. However, oftentimes we rationalize our way out of sharing the gospel with others, don't we? I mean, I, I do it all the time. Well, he won't be interested. Or, you know, I may not have all the answers. He may ask me a lot of tough questions, and I won't be able to answer it. Or he, he's probably one of the swine that Jesus said, don't cast your... That's why he's a swine. I don't want to try to share the gospel with him. 
I mean, he may trample me under, under his feet, you know. And we have all these fears and irrationalities that we use to talk ourselves out of sharing the gospel with someone. But I think what Philip tells us, look, just love people. If you love people, you want to see them go to heaven. You don't want to see them go to hell. And may God increase our love for other people, even people that are strange and different looking than we are. May we love people. I I pray that God would help us as a church. Another application is that sometimes we, we just look at people because they're different. And we see them in such a light that we think that, you know, they're not worth my time. And again, from the Jewish perspective, this Ethiopian eunuch was not someone a typical Jew would, would care or have much interest in or spend much time with at all. Again, this man is a Gentile. This man is a eunuch. He's broken. He's deformed. He serves a pagan queen in a pagan land. He has very little knowledge of the true religion. His life is immersed in money and royal treasures of the queen. And he's not one who would appreciate treasures in heaven. And the Jews would have looked down on this eunuch as being someone who was unclean and defective and perverted and considered them unfit for the kingdom of God. So why even take the effort? And how many times do I and do we sometimes look at other people and have the same type of attitude? Well, just look at that transvestite. I can tell that's really a guy dressed up as a woman. Good grief, I don't want to get close to them. Or how about a homosexual who's so outwardly flaunting it that kind of nauseates me? Or maybe it's a street person that smells bad. Or maybe an illegal or alien. Or So we begin to think, you know, God will not save that kind of a person. They can't be used in God's kingdom. They're too broken. They're too old. They're too unclean. God won't use them. But you see, the Gospel is for everybody. Even people like the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was, glorious convert, he was gloriously converted because God had touched his life and transformed him. And we can only assume how God used this man when he went back to Ethiopia. We're not told. But we know that some of the greatest church leaders came out of northern Africa. Augustine, among many others. And this man might have had a role in many ways to lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure. But I think since this man could not have any physical children because he was a eunuch, my guess is that God gave him a whole quiver full of spiritual children. Children in the family of faith. Children who are birthed into Christ by the grace of God through His Gospel witness to them. That's what I want to believe anyway. I think there's a great encouragement and hope for God's redeeming grace to teach us to realize that the Gospel is for anybody and everybody. That it can transform a sinner no no matter how badly they've been distorted and deformed and defiled by sin. That the grace of God can 
transform any kind of a sinner into a useful vessel for the Master. And oftentimes we make our evaluations of other people on, based on their looks or based on their vocation or based on their clothes instead of seeing them as a living, eternal soul created in the image of God who needs Jesus Christ. And yeah, homosexuals, liars, thieves, drunkards, idolaters, adulterers, the gospel is for everybody. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth? He says that homosexuals, liars, thieves, drunkards, idolaters, and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. Y'all used to be that. And yet God has changed you. And that's the encouragement. That don't look down upon them and think, well, you know, they're worthless. They're not worth my time. God's not interested. Those are the very kinds of sinners that God delights to show His grace and mercy and save. And that's why we need to love people. All kinds of people. And have a desire to see them come to know the Savior. If we look at people the way God looks at sinners in general, that they have human souls that are created in God's image, and that by God's grace, He will change some of them into useful vessels for His kingdom. And I think we're drawing closer to the heart of Philip and the heart, more importantly, of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a poem written by Myra Brooks Welch. It's called The Touch of a Master's Hand. It's a poem that tells of a battered old violin that's about to be sold for just a few bucks at an auction. No one sees it of any value until a man from the back comes forward and he picks up the violin and he plays an amazing song on it. And at that point, everybody's attitude changes and they see the value and the worth of this old violin and it's eventually auctioned off for thousands of dollars. The poem is to teach us the point that the life of a sinner, no matter how they may be discarded, no matter how they may be rejected, can be transformed by the touch of the Master's hand. And I think that fits well with the story of the Samaritan eunuch. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while." To waste his time on the old violin, but held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what now am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars. And who'll make it two? Two thousand. And who'll make it three? Three thousand once. Three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. And the people cheered, but 
Some of them cried, we do not quite understand. What change is worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the Master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the Master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the Master's hand. May that guide us in the potential of God's transforming grace to take up a life ruined by sin and to transform it to a vessel useful for the Master. May God give us that love to see the power of God's grace because that's the same grace that touched us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for the love that Philip had for sinners. And we pray, O God, that You would build within our hearts such a love to see sinners all around us who need to know the Savior. And regardless of how deep they have fallen into sin, regardless of how they have destroyed and dishonored their life, that by the touch of the Master's hand, they can be transformed into a vessel useful for the Master's glory and honor. So Lord, teach us, incline our hearts to love others because we love You and desire for Your glory to be manifested in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.